Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investors Podcast, where we give you the knowledge and confidence to move from residential into commercial property investment. And I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. And this week, I'm really excited to introduce our first guest to the podcast. I, I have a specific niche, of course, that I, I talk about on the podcast, as well as more generalist commercial investment strategies. But I recognize I don't know all of it. And I even really don't know much at all, if the truth be known, about this massive subject. And it's important to talk to experts about specific areas. So it's always been the intention to bring in experts within their own fields so that you as listeners can learn. And of course, so can I. So hopefully I'll ask the questions that, that you have in your mind. If not, please get in touch. Let us know if you'd like to learn about a specific subject or if there's things that we have missed out that you would like to learn more about. So without further ado, this week we're going to be talking about investing in commercial property through your pension funds. There are some amazing reasons to do this. Um, we've been, we're going to explore the advantages, challenges and mechanics of this subject today with our special guest, Paul Barry. So I'm really excited about this. Paul, say hi. Jerry, thank you for having me on. That's excellent to have you on. Thank you for your time. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, Paul, and, and how you've come to be working in this specific area of SaaS? Yeah, no problem at all. So um, I have been engaged in financial services for give or take 30-something years. I really don't like talking about that number because it's a bit depressing, <laughs> um, but it's, it's a fact. Um, I worked for Bank of Scotland for 20 years thereabouts. Uh, and became a, a specialist advisor, a corporate advisor within the bank, advising all sorts of high net worth and corporates and charities and all sorts of people. At that time, SaaS was something that I was um, very much involved with. I had a number of clients who, who had SaaS back then, uh, and that was really my first education in it uh, about 20 years ago. Um, interestingly, well, it's interesting for me, SaaS has been around for 40 years, so even at that point, I wasn't an early adopter or a uh, pioneering the way, wow. but something I was involved with back at that stage many years ago. And um, in more recent years, the last four or five years, I've specialised back into it um, as a SaaS consultant because it's a, um, SaaS is a huge area that's massively interesting and exciting for business owners if they can understand it. Uh, yeah. And my job really here, my challenge here is, is to help people get to that point and provide a you know, point of education and guidance and coaching. Um, and to essentially bring them to the point when they can have a SAS and understand why. So, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. And, and we've got, we're going to try and do this in about an hour. Um, okay. I, as you say, it's a huge subject. So we're, we're, try, yeah. we're not going to get too technical, um, but it would certainly be interesting to, to look at the mechanics of how these things work as well as the advantages. And for our yeah. listeners that are wondering what a SAS is, mm. or indeed what a SIP is, and all yeah. these acronyms, um, mm. Paul, can you maybe explain? Yeah, sure. So a, a SAS, which stands for a small self-administered scheme, and that really means it's a, a pension scheme or a plan designed for and specifically for business owners, SME business owners in the UK. Um, but that, as it was established 40 years ago by the government, I guess, and HMRC, and come up with the idea to do this, to help business owners to actually have more flexibility in creating a plan for them and their specific circumstances, appreciating that business owners have more creativity, more um, entrepreneurial skill, if you like it, and more ability to, to take on risk or understand risk. Not that this is risky, but it gives you control of the risk that you want to take uh, with your pension investment. Um, so SAS is specifically for business owners where a SIP um, is a personal pension 
and designed for anyone, quite frankly, who wants to uh, choose some of the investments within their SIP, uh, within their pension, I should say. Um, there are some big differences between the two, and I'll cover some of them just briefly here. A SAS is for business owners only. It's regarded or called as a, an occupational pension scheme, which means it's regulated differently. It's a group pension for up to 11 people, um, and it has the widest scope of investment um, ability than any other pension in the UK, and certainly way more than a SIP that can offer. And I'll talk about those a little bit later on in the chat. Um, whereas a SIP is very much a personal pension, it's for one individual only. It can do some other things, like, for example, it can own commercial property, but that's pretty much the only thing it can do in, in tandem with a SAS. Um, but it's to me, a SIP is more suited to someone who perhaps is a little bit wealthier or who has more knowledge about investment, but it's very much a, um, an off-the-shelf product that you could go online and choose funds and commodities and things you could invest with within your pension just within a platform. But SAS is, is much more engaged in that, much more engaging within your business. And the two are actually connected in a much more preferential way. Excellent. Okay, so from what you're saying, a SAS, um, you really need to have a business to make that work. That's yeah. the, one of the fundamentals. Yeah. Um, so can anyone set up a SaaS who has a company? Is that the only prerequisite? Yeah, pr pretty much, yeah. So, I mean, the, because the SaaS is an occupational pension scheme, as I said, designed for those business owners, as you um, repeated, you're absolutely right. The, the existence of a business, it doesn't have to be a company, interest, interesting enough, but it, it, it will need to be a more formal structure if you're, if you're a sole trader. But if you are a sole trader or have a business, then you are able to consider a SaaS because we can structure your business in a different way that um, is acceptable to HMRC uh, to, to have you apply for a SaaS. So the, the business bit is the key part. The structure is kind of secondary and we can help you um, structure that properly. And what I mean by that is HMRC would prefer to see or need to see your application for a SaaS accompanied with your business in either a limited company or a limited liability partnership, or actually in Scotland as a, a Scottish partnership, because partnerships in Scotland are actually regarded as separate legal entities on like the rest of the UK. Um, so the qualification is being in business, um, and then after the details, we can work out with you specifically of what your structure needs to be, um, but you must be a business owner or about to establish a business legitimately uh, and have a, a good uh, idea of what you intend to do. I can talk about the details of that one-to-one with much more clarity. But yes, the business owner essentially is the key. The business must be based in the UK. You don't have to be actually, um, but the business must be UK-based trading business. Great. Okay. So you, there's a couple of things there. Um, first one, I would say just as a general is we're obviously having a chat here and we're talking about generalist areas mm -hmm. if people do want um, specific details they're really going to have to speak to an expert somebody like yourself to actually look through the personal circumstances so although we're going to be giving some ideas on how this works really before you do anything you need to be speaking to somebody who has got experience somebody like yourself uh, paul yeah. so the sas itself you mentioned it can be up to 11 people is that correct yeah. So with a SIP, really, it's if you've got your own, you're doing your own personal pension, you could still potentially do some commercial property, which ultimately is what we're discussing here. Yeah. But, but in terms of a SAS, just for the sake of completeness, what else can you put in a SAS other than commercial property? Okay, so a, a SAS can hold investments into a wide variety of things, Jerry, more than actually the SIP can or any other pension type. So that could include, as you mentioned, commercial property, obviously. Um, it could uh, include land um, or land with buildings on it, but not residential property. No pension can hold resident property at all. Although there are ways it's asked to help with that. Um, it can own any investment fund, any traded fund, any uh, OIC unit trust, any normal asset people be familiar with. It can own trusty investment plans. It can own bank accounts. Uh, it can hold cash in its own bank accounts. It can do pretty much anything that you'd expect an investment structure to be able to do, except, and with all pensions, what it cannot own directly is, as I mentioned, residential property. It can't own fine wines and antiques and watches, as someone asked me just recently, actually, um, or chattels, and other things that you could actually own yourself in your own possession. So 
no pension fund can own them, but it could trade in assets that are derived from those assets, if that makes sense. So you could trade in a fund that owned watches or a fund that traded gold or foreign currency or whatever, and you just couldn't own the physical asset because human nature being what it is, that asset might not appear again in time and you might have put it somewhere else and forgotten where it was, as an example. That's the HMRC's view, of course, of how human nature would be that people forget where they put things, <laughs> like fine wines and art, for example. So um, no pension can do that, but SAS can get you a lot closer to that than you might think uh, in terms of how that can be done. And we can talk about that in more detail. Now, one thing you mentioned a minute ago, actually, it's a good point. that This is a, a generic conversation um, and it, no, we should, my answer here be considered or construed as financial advice because it isn't, um, it is us having conversations about SAS and, and I think it opens up more questions uh, as inevitably this conversation will do. But th these are not specific answers to specific people in specific circumstances. So it made a very valid point on that. So, um, but in answer to your investment question, uh, SAS can invest in pretty much anything you could imagine it could and probably more provided it's done with a, a, a shop just approved or approvable to HMRC. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, it, it's quite interesting to hear how the two different pensions work and that they can do some similar things, mm -hmm. but SAS clearly gives you much more options. Um, yeah. the, the key factor, of course, being that you're, you have your own business to be able to do that. Yeah. What what are the other important factors? If we try and get more into the mechanics for a little minute, what, what are the other important factors to consider when actually setting up a SaaS? Okay, um, so whilst you're absolutely correct, a lot of people will have a SaaS or need a SIP actually, um, but the biggest primary people would prefer a SaaS is that the, the business that they have is able to make large contributions from profit from the business into the SaaS, but you cannot do that with a SIP. Um, so a SIP is limited to the an annual limit of £40,000 per annum of profit you can make from contribution you can make from business profit into the SIP, which is still a lot of money, it's not inconsiderate. In However, in comparison to the SAS, which allows you to put up to half a million pounds a year, or anything up to that, obviously, then that is a, a major significant difference. And the point of that, of course, being Jerry, is that if you do that for your business, then you will be saving corporation tax as soon as you do. So if you put in £100,000 at corporation tax rates today, you receive £18,000 in tax in doing that, and, and, which is obviously very attractive. But the, the usual retort I get to that from people is, well, that, that's great, but what if I need the money? Um, which is a, a natural question when you're in business because money doesn't just fall off trees, particularly at times as we are in now, then cash flow and liquidity is clearly important. Um, so one of the big things that SAS allows you to do that no other pension can in the UK is it allows you to actually borrow money back from the, the SaaS pension itself back into your business. And, and that flexibility and that um, ability, if you like, is, is hugely important to business owners because knowing that they can do that for in case of need, uh, but also in case that they have a specific project they want to invest within. And so essentially, you, you've been able to, in that example, you've been able to put money into the environment of the SaaS and a tax relief to do that. You then You've taken the money out of the risk environment that environments are that may be within your business because maybe cash flow is not what it was, or someone's pursuing you for a debt, and therefore having the capital not inside the business and outside of it is a good thing to do for protection reasons, and that is legitimate and legal, obviously. Um, but having the ability to borrow money back in that situation is really powerful for people, even if, as they, they don't want the comfort of knowing they can do it. But it may be that they want to um, to improve their business, or they might want to buy an asset, or um, improve a property or even buy a property um, inside their business um, using money that's been sourced from uh, inside their pension ultimately. So it's, it's powerful. Um, that, that is a big subject on its own, the, the, the use of the SAS in that uh, sense. Uh, but a lot of my clients use it for that reason. So um, so in the couple of things before me there, so someone has put money from their business into the SAS and say tanks, they've got the ability to borrow money back out and use that efficiently. Um, and then they have the ability to recycle that money. So if they borrowed money out of the pension and made gain on that by investing into an asset or into their business and making more profit, because that would be the point, of course, that additional profit can also be put back into the SaaS and the corporation tax saved on that. And then the money can be recycled again legitimately out of the SaaS back into the business. There's a whole array of ways of making that work. And I'm not saying that's what anyone should or shouldn't do. But that's just an example of someone putting money into the pension in the first instance and then using it 
And in the course of using it efficiently, I've actually ticked a number of boxes and reasons why you'd have a SAS. Um, Great. Okay. So thanks for that, Paul. Let's, let's get more specific about commercial property. That's what okay. this podcast is about. What, what are the things people should consider about commercial property? And before, when we had conversations before, Paul, you, you've mentioned about being able to actually transfer an existing property into the SAS, which yeah. um, I'm, I'm intrigued to know more about. But also, just in general about commercial, what are some of the factors people need to know? What about loan to value? Um, what about the um, trustees' influence on what you can invest in in terms of commercial? Could you maybe expand on that for us, please? Yeah, sure. So SAS, just to kind of position that alongside SIP, does have the ability to buy directly buy and own commercial property and land. It's essentially the same thing in this context as does a SIP. The difference, though, is that the SIP it doesn't have the same scope to be able to do that because the SIP is regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the FCA are not particularly keen on commercial property as an asset class for loads of reasons, but I'm not going to them all here, but essentially they just don't favour it as an asset class, and not only because of the commercial property itself, but because of issues that property has raised, particularly overseas property has raised within the SIP environment, and it just makes it difficult for SIP trustees to, to govern and regulate that process, which is why the regulator has now um, insisted or, or requires that SIP trustees have much more structure and, and, and um, governance around the ownership of commercial property in the SIP. And in short, that makes the process of investing in commercial property in a SIP more cumbersome and certainly more expensive than it used to be, and therefore more expensive generally than it would be holding it inside a SAS. Um, the reason that's different is the SAS is not FCA regulated because it's not a retail product. It is regulated, just not by that same regulator. Um, but because of that and because the ownership of, of the, the SAS is essentially to you as the business owner and you as your own trustee, then you determine which assets you can invest into because it's your choice. There will be governance around that in terms of the suitability of that asset. Um, so in other words, you couldn't buy uh, a residential property and call it commercial because you fancy calling that, that wouldn't work. So as long as the, the trustee of your SAS agrees that it is a commercial property and HMRC would agree that, then the SAS can own any asset and that you wish in, in that sense. And it could be an asset that company doesn't have any income. It could be a derelict asset. It could be one that you, you plan to refurbish or convert into a different um, type of commercial or, or even residential ultimately. But um, there isn't really a restriction on the type of commercial. Um, there isn't a restriction on what you can use it for as long as the, the asset is suitable, has title and has a clear value at the point that you're seeking to buy it, then that will generally be acceptable to, to the SAS. Um, the investment decision is yours because you are making decisions for yourself in the scope of, of your own diligence on it. The trustee, as in the governance point within the SAS, will determine whether it's acceptable in terms of its title and use, not whether it's a good investment or not. And um, that's if it's, if it's obviously not a good investment, i.e., sitting on top of a nuclear bunker or something, then that might be something that you might want some second opinion on. But the trustee, as a professional trustee, will not tell you what to do, they'll just tell you if you can't do it, basically. Um, okay, so I, I know I've, I've got a habit of talking, Jerry. So I, I think you probably asked me three or four questions initially, so I'll probably ask me one of them there. What, what other things did you ask me about? Well, I think it's one of the things I've picked up on before is, um when you're actually looking at leveraging the money that you have in your SaaS, because not all of us will have the, the ability to buy um, commercial assets completely loan-free. Yeah. So there is a, a limit, I believe, on how much you can borrow within your SaaS. Um, yeah. And through financial institutions, you would try and um, borrow the money. It's not necessarily a rule from them, but it's, it's a rule from HMRC. Can you just yeah. go into that a little bit more and those, those things yeah. that people would need to consider when they're looking at commercial? Yeah, that's a good point. So um, one thing that is important to, to understand here, so a SaaS has the ability to buy commercial property, understand that. Um, but the SaaS has an ability uh, by HMRC governance that allows you to, to leverage against that asset. So if you had, for simple numbers, £100,000 of value in a SaaS, then you're able to borrow externally from a lender of any variety. I mean by that, any, it could be a private funder, it could be a bank, it could be um, a leasing company, whatever, um, to lend, or for them to lend up to 50% of the SaaS value in order that you can leverage that against an asset. In, in that case, 
you clearly then would have £150,000 of value that you could use to purchase commercial property. Now, if the asset was worth £130,000, then your leverage would be commensurate with the value of the asset that you had, so, because the lender won't give you 100% funding, um, because yeah. that's not, they're not allowed to do that. Um, but in actual fact, that, that limit at 50% is probably not massively different to what LTVs might be anyway, um, even if you, if you had the capital in your business and you're looking to leverage with an external lender. A, a, bridge or, a bridging finance would probably be higher than that, but you know, if it's 65 or 50%, we're not talking massive differences, but bearing in mind the money you put into the SaaS has gone in there tax-free and tax-allowably, so you probably net up there and then can leverage off that value, uh, albeit 50%. The 50%, will just as you mentioned there, is an HMRC limit. It's not a, a lending limit per se, but the SaaS itself cannot borrow more than 50% of its asset value. So that's why that's there. It's not, it's not a commercial decision. That's just a, a tax-based decision, if that makes sense, a regulatory decision. Okay. Um, in the past, uh, another question I've been asked um, by people looking at funding commercial through the pension is, well, it's all very well putting, uh, putting money through my pension to be able to buy commercial, but I'm out of an age where I'm not necessarily going to get an income from that right now. I can't necessarily draw down an income from it. So it's just looking at ways that people can perhaps, they may not have considered a prop call and an op call, a situation where they perhaps manage to draw down some income, but through the management of those assets. So is that something you've maybe come across with some customers? Yeah, um, it's not actually as common as you might think, but it'd be more common in, in terms of the guidance that you're talking about to you know, actually buying commercial property using your business. But um, the, the SaaS structure that I'm involved with, that I'm involved with and, and will involve clients within, it doesn't directly guide clients on that type of structure. But yes, to answer your question, the, if the asset requires to be managed or, or you have a, um, a need to manage it, whether that is facilities management or rent collection or whatever it may be, then that, that is a process that you are able to, to charge your pension scheme for because th that process should be protecting the asset and enhancing its value. And as long as you are doing that, then it's perfectly feasible that you could. Or for example, you may have a, um, a, a trades business or all trades or, or, or whatever it may be, or a cleaning business or whatever, you, you may be able to charge the SaaS for the refurbishment, the, the repairs, the management, the maintenance, of those assets because it's appropriate that you do and it would make sense that SAS would appoint someone that trust to do it and so, so yes there is that ability to have that kind of operational element to it and that, that absolutely can work and that is subject to trustee approval to make sure for example you know you know if, if you're charging 10 grand a year in rent you can't charge nine and a half as, as management fees because that would just be would be ridiculous quite frankly and that wouldn't that wouldn't work so if it's something commensurate and fair and commercial then yes that, that is acceptable HMRC are not um, unfair in this process, you just need to make sure that the process is done for the right reason because fundamentally this is a pension, it isn't a business bank account so it's not meant to be uh, the reverse, um, as it's not meant to be the funding source of your business, although it can be. Um, as long as you understand it's a pension structure first and the governance comes from HMRC primarily, then if you kind of figure that in your mind as its starting point for regulation, it's quite common how you'd make that work. The other thing you could do um, to, to, to answer your question specifically about having access to value from the pension scheme now, uh, which you, you generally cannot do with any pension before 55, is it, with the borrowing mechanism that SAS has, it's feasible that you could loan money to your own company if you wanted to, and it could buy the commercial property asset and have a reverse situation where the company owns the asset and it owes the money back to the SAS for the purchase of it. And now that, that, that is feasible and all the income you would earn on that asset would be uh, would belong to the company because it owns the asset and it just funded it um, from the pension scheme. So that, that reverses the relationship actually um, and that can be done. That's probably more viable to be fair if you are buying a commercial property and potentially looking to, um, to slice it and dice it and you know, refurbish it and sell it on, into a different structure or refinance it perhaps. But that, that, because the funding that the SAS offers is, is up to a maximum of five years, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a 25-year life cycle, it wouldn't work for that. Um, but if you plan to otherwise refinance or sell it, then the SAS can absolutely help you do that. And commercial property is an absolute asset that, that you'd be able to 
the purchasing the company using the, the SaaS fund to do so. Great, thank you. And I guess it's important to say this is part of the mix, part of the funding mix. And on the podcast, uh, back to my own experience, my real thing is encouraging people to not only invest in these assets, but to keep them and to mm -hmm. buy assets that they can keep for the long term to build up the value and potentially to use that to leverage for, for further investment. And pension through SaaS would be one of those areas that you could do that. And you don't have to put all the buildings in there. It's not all or nothing. It's just yeah. perhaps one property could sit in there or two properties could sit within that structure. But your ongoing day-to-day -day management would continue with the other buildings and with those particular um, ones through the SaaS. I think it, it's it's really interesting to know, and this is the topic I want to talk about next, is, is how this can help with long-term planning. Mm -hmm. So if you are looking at developing a commercial portfolio and you want to hold it for the long term, other things you might consider are, how, how do I help with inheritance? How, how can I pass this on to the next generation? And there's yeah. some really interesting things within SaaS, and I'd, I'd like to ask you about that because yeah. there's... That the fact that you can have more than one person in this um, structure, there is a possibility of looking at multi-generational wealth. Can you maybe just describe to listeners how that perhaps could work for them? Yeah, that's a really good point, Jen, actually. And there's probably two points in there I'll cover off just in that one question. So the fact that you can have multiple members within this ass, don't forget also what brings two other things up. What it brings is the ability to, to pull more value together. I mean that as P-U-L-L, -L, initially to bring it in and then to pull it P-O-L -L, in, in terms of collective use of the money. And because then you know, a typical partner, husband, spouse, wife situation, other partners, other partners, whatever, doesn't matter who it is, brothers and parents, kids, bringing all those people together has the ability to, to bring more value together and therefore more scope to have more asset value within that structure. That typically makes more sense for it as a family structure because you want to retain, generally want to retain wealth within your family. Um, so th there's more capital there to do it. There's more resource there to be able to go and, and invest in more. And the key point you mentioned there is about um, SaaS is not, not advocating that SaaS is a panacea for all ills. It is not the answer for everything well used it's an extremely powerful tool but we're not seeing that, that you know, this is the expense of all others and um, it's a great thing to have within your mix as any other asset should be is, is in a, a well-balanced structure whatever that may be or mean to you um but by having more people in it you're also therefore able to cascade that wealth to those same people and um, so your point there about inheritance is a really valid point because if if i as an individual had a, a property portfolio that owned in my company or owned personally and i die and i pass that to and someone outside my immediate family, i.e. my spouse or partner, then that will be subject to inheritance tax at currently 40%. Now, the way that taxation is likely to head in this country, given what the government has essentially just been handing out, up to 300 billion pounds of taxpayers' money that hasn't been earned yet, you can't imagine that that kind of taxation rate is going to come down anytime soon. And I have no intelligence in that other than just what I'd imagine as a... Uh, someone of 30 odd years experience of paying tax. So the ability to mitigate that legitimately is obviously a powerful thing. And the way I often um, sort of assimilate that is if, if I had worked for 40 years and I hadn't got an inheritance tax efficient model there, then I might as well have not worked the last 16 of those because 40% of them was a waste of time because I was given up. So I could have stopped at 24 years and then relaxed the last 16 because <laughs> I'd be no better off. Um, and, and that to me is a quite a powerful thing when you maybe say to someone that you maybe could have stopped working at 49 rather than 65. There's a lot of living to be done in those 16 years and I'd rather have done it, quite frankly, <laughs> with 16 years to enjoy it than maybe hoping to get to 65 and beyond. So um, the reason that's, that's different than a SaaS is because a SaaS is a trust structure and you have a group of people within it. If one person um, dies, then according to their wishes, assuming it is their wish, then whoever is left within the SaaS the value can cascade to them according to the wishes of the deceased person free of all tax because the money hasn't gone anywhere it should or the, the asset value hasn't gone anywhere it's just sat within the same structure now the great thing with that is that that gives the the inheritor and the person getting the money and um, this the choice to not pay tax and to retain the asset and to have that wealth 
for themselves when they come to age 55 and older, as an, as an income, age 55 and older, the only asset they Or they can choose if they want to, uh, to disinvest that asset and pay the inheritance tax, but, but at least there's a choice in there. Because if, if there wasn't a mechanism there and you're going to receive that money as inheritance, you would be paying 40% tax on it. And bearing in mind with inheritance tax, which is quite frankly bizarre, you have to pay it first before you can receive the value. So if you are receiving the, the very you know, attractive gift of a two million pounds property portfolio, you'd have to find 800 grand first where you can get it. <laughs> there are ways and means of doing that and there are specialist funders that can help you through that process. But even that, it's just, you know, it's a pain that's going to cost money. It will take a year, 18 months to get to that point. And, and you know, at the time you suffered a bereavement, it's not exactly the point you want to start embarking down those roads. Whereas within the SAS, It'd be, you know, that would be said and done the day you died. Now, get the number mentioned of it, you'd own the asset, or other people would own those assets because they inherited them, and that would be the end of the matter. Um, Fantastic. And, and Fantastic. that, for most of us, sorry, Jerry, I know I have a habit of talking here, but for, for most of us, the fact is that we are working to enhance the, the, the wealth and stability and security of our family. And, and that is exactly what that is. And it's quite common that we forget that bit because we're so busy doing. The, the accumulation part that we forget about the preservation bit, which is what that is. Yes, we're all thinking um, it by the very fact that we're using the word pension, we're not necessarily thinking about trust or yeah. inheritance. Um, and, it, and I think it's a really key factor of, of this subject. Yeah. Um, can we go a little bit more into the mechanics then? So, what are, what are the costs people should be aware of? And just if they are going to set up. SAS. Obviously, you sit down with somebody like yourself to discuss this topic. But but what's the actual process? Who else is involved? We've talked about trustees. Who are they? Are they grey men in grey suits, or you know, how, how does all that work? Very much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, actually, the structure is probably a good place to start that because from there I can probably explain a few things. So uh, within a SAS, or I should say, within the highest level of of SAS um, type, there are three types of SAS you can have. Um, and and they, those are really predicated on the type of service that you get from the operator that provides the SaaS to you. The difficulty with this is that that service isn't always immediately transparent or apparent when you look at a SaaS externally. So if you look at something online and Google it and, and find a SaaS provider, it's really difficult to know what service and what provision of SaaS they actually offer. And because the terminology can be all mixed up and you maybe don't know the terminology, you don't know what it means, you don't know the differences anyway, quite frankly. So... Um, and I'll make some examples of that in a second. But so there are three types of, of service in the SaaS. There's, there's a basic level called a practitioner, which means that you basically find the SaaS, you get it approved by HMRC, and you run it yourself. That, to me, uh, in, in my opinion, is akin to finding a, a rowboat and a paper mat and saying you're going to you know, row yourself to, to New York. Now, you maybe can, and, and technically you could, uh, but good luck with that. Uh, as I'm going to say, because you will have to be proficient in navigation and a whole range of things before you can navigate and chart that course. Running that process, it can be done if you are, for example, a chartered accountant or someone that's you know, very experienced in tax and, and pensions, then you can do that process. I would encourage people not to consider that process because it is fraught with danger and risk. So that's the basic level of service, number one, practitioner. Number two is administration or administrative function which essentially gives you that basic level, but someone to call upon should you need some help uh, with documentation, for example, or, or some guidance with it. That is a good basic level of service. Uh, and that's, for most people, probably okay if you have a general knowledge or gain of tax and, and pensions and investments. The level of service, which is the one that my colleagues offer, is a full trustee and administration service. That basically means that you have a professional partner alongside you as your co-trustee and what I mean by that is when you have a SAS you are what's called a member trustee so the money belongs to you as a member and is in your control as a trustee for simplicity and the the professional trustee sits alongside you essentially as uh, as your mentor and your guide uh, and and really your um your referee really so you can't make a mess of it because it's very easy in a SaaS, for example, at the lowest levels of service, you could buy an asset that isn't actually allowable within a SaaS. But once you've done it, you've done it, you can't reverse it. And if you got that wrong, 
HMRC can charge up to 95% unauthorised tax charges, which you, you just don't want to get down those roads with HMRC because once you've, you've gone wrong with that, then what else will you start looking at? What else do you think you're up to and all sorts of things? That just could be a genuine mistake. You just don't want to go down those roads. So having the full level three professional trustee service is the way I would advocate people should operate a SAS because it keeps you 100% right. You can't fulfil the law. And if you do, then it's up to the trustee to correct it because the professional dignity insurance would put that back to where you were in which you're not at risk. And okay. what's important to understand here is the professional trustee is acting alongside you. They do not own your money because the SAS, by, by definition, is an individual trust that, it belong, that which belongs to you. So if you decide that the trustee that you currently have, professional trustee that you have, isn't right for you, you can't get along with them ever, or they went bust, or it doesn't really matter, then that wouldn't affect your SAS because they don't own the money. So the SAS belongs to you. A lot of people just don't understand that and assume, to be fair, because financial education in this country doesn't tell us otherwise. If you have a pension, then it's up to the, the pension manager to look after it and it's, and it's them that's got your money in that. And that would be the case if it was with an investment company, but a SAS is not an investment company structure as you may imagine. So level three service, personal trustee is what you need to keep you right. Um, but the decisions within that are down to you. So the trustee there acting alongside you will just tell you if you can or cannot do what you're proposing and will help you then to transact it if you want to do so. What I did want to ask you though, we're talking about level three there. Some of the, some of the listeners will be wondering, well, so what does that mean financially? What, what's the cost? SAS has, as with all pensions, all financial structures, different layers of costs associated with it. The primary one uh, that we'll talk about first, or, or that I would talk about with a client first, uh, is the SAS setup charge. That is a one-off charge to get the SAS structured and understood and, and set up and administered and all those things to to have to go down the road of doing. That's what we and I will do for you to get that set up. And that, that allows us to um, liaise with HMRC on your behalf because each SAS must be individually approved and that process takes time. So that's the process that we will do for you. So that one of charge covers that. And then thereafter, there's an annual charge for the professional trustee services. And um, that charge typically for a, a SAS with two people is just over a thousand pounds a year. And that is regardless of the value you have within the SAS, which is important because we have no motivation if you have £10,000 or £10 million, we are not paid or rewarded on the value of your pension. We are paid to, to run the structure for you. And so we have no interest in promoting investments or, or ability to promote investments. That's not what we do. We are there simply to give you the best service possible and the right structure for the SAS. So that's what the professional trustee um, service charge buys you that service. And thereafter, Jerry, there are one-off charges for one-off things. So, for example, if you were going to buy a commercial property, then as in a company structure, there would be legal fees to do that. There would be legal fees in this process because that's still an entity buying an asset. And they are no more expensive in a SaaS than they would be if you're buying it to your company. But the SaaS itself would charge an administration fee for processing a property purchase because that would take time and expertise to do that within the SaaS. And that would typically be a few hundred pounds. So a property purchase would probably be around 500 pounds plus that, unless it was a particularly complicated process and it might take a bit more time. But we're not talking thousands and thousands of pounds to do this. And SAS does have, or can be misunderstood as being expensive, but actually it's no more expensive than some of the pension types, and actually it's probably cheaper than a lot of others too. So for example, a pension with two people in it, you charge a thousand or 20 pounds a year to manage it, that's only £510 each, which is probably the same or less than most SIPs would charge for one person. Yeah. So it's, it's not, and a SIP would still charge admin charges and all sorts of things. So it's not massively expensive. The setup charge will generally range from between, say, £2,000 to £4,000, depending on the circumstances and depends on how many people are involved in it and what's happening in the process and how many things you have to meet and all sorts of things. But that's not inexpensive, but is getting you to a point where you have a tool that you've never had before that can do massively powerful things that you could never have done any other way before. Um, I think it, it's quite interesting uh, conversations I've had with people who, a couple of, limit, couple of things they think are limiting for them. Number one is the time it takes to set it up. And the second thing is the costs. Mm -hmm. And they feel that the costs make it slightly prohibitive because of the level they're at. Yeah. But 
But when you start considering the tax advantages um, of actually moving the money that obviously you've got to make a profit in the company, but moving the profit into the SaaS, it, it does pretty quickly um, make sense, even for small purchases, to yeah. actually go through that process. Absolutely. What, what is the typical length of time that you see um, SaaS is taking to actually set up with HMRC? I mean, yeah. obviously, sometimes they'll have hiccups and things, but what's the general? Yeah, sure. Um, so typically, I would suggest to uh, a, a new client uh, in an initial conversation that, that that process can take anything between six and 12 weeks on average. Um, that, that is not a, a contractual period. Um, and the reason why it isn't is that that process is entirely determined by HMRC because it's they who approve it. Um, we, as the, the operator and my colleagues as the trustee, have got absolutely zero input into that timescale. I cannot determine it, cannot chase them up for a, a quick favour or a, put it to the top of the pile conversation. It just doesn't work like the HMRC, as we know, are not a trading business for a a set of service level standards that they are determined to, to adhere to. Not to say they're unhelpful because they're not, but they, they, they just work to um, a process and that's it. And, and, if, and as, as you might imagine, they are a, a government department. They're not, there to, they're not there to service in that sense. They're there to approve and grant authority. And so there isn't that relationship thing you can leverage off and say, well, it just isn't that process. So... The worst case scenario I've seen, Jerry, is it's taken over a year. Um, that to fair was in a, a, a fairly bad state of affairs eight, two years ago when HMRC had a lack of resource in the department. Um, but right now, for example, when we're in this um, bizarre situation, it may be that HMRC are quicker because less people are currently able to get to apply for a SAS because their business is furloughed, for example, or their employees are furloughed. Um, or... HMRC may have less resource because they've allocated resource elsewhere because they're relatively busy trying to pay the country 80% of their income at the moment. And so I, I couldn't say actually it's taking longer than that because I don't think it is, but it will take a few weeks, maybe a couple of months for an easy assumption, but it could be longer, it could be less. I've seen it done in a day. There's, just, there's no rule on it, but assuming six to 12 weeks is the way forward and it's frustrating for me because even having that conversation with you now and with a client upon application, I will guarantee within five or six weeks, I'll get an email or a phone call or a text saying, what's happening with this? See <laughs> <laughs> uh, above. You know, I'd, I'd love to be able to say, oh, we've spoken to um, you know, some lovely person, HMRC, who assures us it's top of the pile. It just doesn't work like that, unfortunately. We can't find out. So um, I know why people ask, because they're keen to get going. And I, I absolutely, you know, um, Acknowledge that, but we just there's nothing we can do to find out. Unfortunately, it just takes yeah. as long as it takes. Okay, so just a couple of things to summarise then from from um, my side. You need a company to do this yep. to set up your SaaS. It can mm -hmm. be up to eleven people in it. Yeah. Um, it's going to cost you between two to four grand to basically get it set up. Yeah. And it's going to cost you about a grand a year to administer. Yeah. And Based on the transactions, if you're doing multiple transactions, like uh, a lot of people doing multiple transactions in the stock market, every time you do a transaction, there is a cost. But it's not significant. It's not as much as um, the actual normal cost you would uh, accumulate in a transaction. It's, yep. it's an administrative cost, yep. which you can understand because people are putting in their time. So that's the summary of where I think my head's at on that. But one of the things that we... We asked earlier on, we didn't quite cover, but she said also something I think some of our listeners will be considering is over the years, one or two people may have purchased a commercial property. They may have done so for their company, mm -hmm. but there is an opportunity to transfer that property into your SaaS. Yep. So could you maybe just talk a little bit about that and yeah, what the implications are? Yeah, that's a, a great point, Jerry. I'm glad you brought it up because I, I had forgotten to cover it, actually, so thank you for that. Um, the, yeah, it, it's a big part of SaaS. Um, it's a big use for of SaaS when I talk to clients who, who currently own commercial property. Um, not least, there's a, a, some really attractive tax benefits of, of, of using this process, but, but also protects the asset from uh, external risks such as liquidation or litigation or um, whatever it may be, trading um, performance. So, there are a couple ways to look at this. So if an individual owns a commercial property 
personally, then there are some really attractive benefits of, of migrating the ownership of that into the SaaS. Before I get into detail, that's probably useful just for me to, to cover off what this process actually is about and what it's called. So essentially it's called the pledging process or, or the pledging of an asset into the SaaS. And that's ultimately going to be done by your company um, who will end up as the owner of the asset, who will then pledge it into the pension scheme in lieu of a cash contribution. So that's what it is. There's, there's a, um, a few cases around the HMRC uh, of recent months and years um, about doing a process called in-species transfer, which is what this is sometimes referred to and actually isn't that. And because if you do that process, HMRC can challenge it. And this is not what that is. So again, working with the right professionals and the right trustees will help me on that process and get it right, which is what my colleagues are all about. And that wasn't a, a pitch for business here, but it's just it's an important point just to make that clear that there are definitions even within the process here that some trustees get wrong and some get right. So, um, so coming back to the basics of it, so if I own a commercial property in my name, I'm currently the owner of it, so the asset belongs to me, uh, and I receive the, the rental income directly to me, and I'll, I'll pay tax on which which is fine if, that, if that's your structure. However, what I can do ultimately, and to get the process really efficient, what I can do there is transfer that asset into my company first of all, uh, and in so doing, I can create a really efficient tool to, to reclaim tax back out of the company in that process. I'm not going to get into great detail and I could get to the realms of potentially giving tax advice and that's not what I'm trying to do here. So, but there's some really tax efficient ways of doing that. So I transfer the property to the company first and the company transfers it into the SAS when we have a pledge. Those two processes kick in a couple of uh, tax credits. The second one would be a corporation tax relief and of the value paid in to the SAS by way of the company. Now that could be significant, 18% of anything significant, but if it's a couple hundred grand or more of an asset value, then that's obviously very attractive as a tax reclaim. But then the asset ends up in the SAS, which is a tax-free environment and also in a trust, which means that in case of litigation or liquidation, then the company asset no longer belongs to the company because it's in a pension scheme. And as long as that was done legitimately and not during a liquidation or an insolvency or a litigation case, and that asset no longer belongs to the business and can't therefore be taken off you. So from just a perspective of protecting the asset and keeping it out of harm's way, and having it in the SAS is obviously very beneficial. And then, as you mentioned, talked about before, the asset becomes inheritance tax-free. Now, the, the whole process here, and I've got models and, and, and presentations and videos and all sorts, of, all sorts of collateral I can share with you and listeners, that process is really really beneficial if you get your head on it and understand how it works. Now, again, not everybody is a business owner, not everybody owns commercial property, but for the people that do, that is a hugely powerful tool to understand. And it can be a bit of a eureka moment when you figure out how that can actually work for you. Because I've seen situations where the net gain of doing that over 10 years was way more than the value of the asset ever was, just by restructuring how you hold it. And you've, you've not been anything smart with it, you've just moved it from one structure to another, which is smart, but it's not it's not challenging to HMRC, it's not tax avoidance, it's not it's not a dodgy scheme that someone's gonna come back to you and say, well what was this all about? Um, it is really, really efficient if you understand it. My job and the role of my, my colleagues is to gauge clients and uh, and associates through that process because that's what we do. Um, but yeah it's a really interesting point if you can um, if, if, if it applies to you, it's really interesting to get ahead on it. Yeah, so it, it, it shows, like, yet again, that knowledge is, knowledge is power here. <laughs> um, so that was a two-stage process. Obviously, if that property is already within the company, and, and yeah. we've had many customers in the past who have their own, their own business as a trading company within it. They have an asset that mm -hmm. they trade from. Yeah. And over the years, the business has been reasonably good to them. It's been, I wouldn't say a lifestyle business, but it's given them the income they needed. But when they get to the end of that process, they realize that even though they were a roofing contractor or a joiner or something, actually the real value came in the end from the property they bought way back at the start. Yeah. And, and I guess for them to put that into the SaaS is just a one-step process from there. They don't, you know, they can still do it, but it's just yeah. directly from the company. Yeah. It's uh, it just, again, as I say, knowledge is power, it really is. 
fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it's, that's a great point, Jeff, because a lot of people regard their business or their business assets as their pension, which, which is quite right. Uh, but in this case, you can actually structure it within your pension and it will become actually your pension or part of it in a, in a legitimate and formal way that has the tax status and the protection that only a pension can give you. And, and that, you know, that's exactly what that is. And I, I, I guess, to answer your question, way at the start of this process, why did I get involved in SAS? It was primarily because dealing with some sophisticated business owners who were asking me as a financial advisor for some great ideas. I didn't have any because I only had a, a set number of products and processes that a financial advisor can actually work within. And, and the people in that position were looking for creative ideas to save tax, to, to advance their business, to help them use their business under pension and, and actually kind of collaborate. That's exactly what SAS does. That's why I was excited by it 20 years ago. That's why I'm so excited about it now because it actually does those things in tandem. And for business owners who are in that, that position, the, the business is the pension. It just not it just isn't called that at the minute. Yes. We're, we're and, a lot of, and a lot of time they don't recognise it. They yeah, exactly. don't realise it at that time. Yeah. Or they thought about it too late, and then that process can't happen because you know, they've turned their toes up or something happens that, that something happens in the business. And like, like right now, you know, I, I could be the owner of a cracking... Uh, restaurant chain or a bar business and I'd, I'd be worried right now at the minute uh, but shouldn't I be worried about the asset because if the asset was in a structure that wasn't owned by the business then I, I shouldn't worry about it yeah. uh, I'm worried about the business oh, absolutely and, and you know I think we, we all have our worries in that, in that um, respect but the asset should be separate from the actual structure of the company in my opinion to keep it secure and protected yes agreed agreed um, one of the questions I'm going to ask everybody is what does commercial property investment mean to you so yes the market's changing at the moment uh, it might not visibly have changed but we all know the under the underlying economics are changing so at, at present what does commercial investment mean to you what, what do you see the opportunities as um, yeah, multiple actually. But I should have said to you at the start of the chat as well, Jerry, that we were recently offered my colleague and I uh, a commercial property portfolio, um, which I think is about forty-four varying sizes of some retail, about half a dozen retail, and about thirty odd um, light industrial and commercial units you know, occupied by SMEs and um, sort of one or two person businesses, not big operation by any means, but but there are multiple of them and long-standing tenants. That portfolio really attracted me because the, the income stream on it is very attractive. The yield is high because they're generally regarded as high risk, but they're not high risk people, but because of the, the profile of the businesses and the type of assets. And the assets were in extremely good condition and had been very well looked after by the owner who was a construction company. So you could tell the things have been well built in the first place and were well maintained. That interested me knowing because I can totally see the attraction in it and we actually looking to acquire the, the business rather than acquire each asset individually. So um, I find that hugely attractive. Uh, but likewise, many of my clients have single direct property purchases or land uh, and I regard that as a great investment in my opinion. I'm not advocating that as advice as I keep repeating, but um, it makes there's a logic to that, particularly if your business is in any way associated with it uh, because you have the ability to operate from your own commercial premises or not, or to sublet them, or not, uh, to manage the process yourself. But fundamentally, you've got an asset there that you'd have to have had anyway, uh, or paid income up rent to, to a third party and never saw the other side of it. So I, I regard that as exciting. But just before we spoke here, we're talking about um, my direct involvement in commercial property. I don't own commercial property in my SaaS specifically, uh, but it's certainly, much, certainly something that's very much on my agenda. Uh, so, and as an asset class, I have always favoured it, and particularly if, uh, in property in general. But if you look back over the years and, and look at the, for example, the FTSE 100, that is just like a, a child's drawn numbers and, and charts. And you're like, what, what is that? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for people, it isn't wrong. Great for some people, great for a balanced portfolio. But commercial property is very different, and the profile of that for me has always been more stable. Yes, there are challenges, and, and, but again, like anything else, Commercial property is a massive market with massive sector differences and regional differences and geographical differences. It's difficult to just say what you think about it one in one go, I guess. But yeah, something is on my agenda and I deal with it a lot on a day-to-day -day basis. 
yeah, I'm sure you'll see a lot of customers um, taking advantage of it. I think just one of the other tidying up points that I'd like to do, um, uh, as I said earlier on, I, I tend to encourage people to buy for the longer term and to build value through applying their, their creative process, trying to maybe split units up, change the use, deliver a different type of setting for customers to add value and then leverage that. Mm -hmm. But but it's important to say that within a SaaS, it's not, doesn't, you don't have to treat every asset as a long-term thing, can you? You can trade in there, you can do, um, yeah. you can fund, because you mentioned before, before we went on air, that you, you also yourself through your own SaaS, although you haven't invested directly in commercial for a long term, you have been involved in projects where there's an in and there's an exit. So yeah. it, it, that is something that people can do, yeah? Yeah, for sure, yeah. I mean, so. The, the, the great thing with the SaaS owning the, the commercial property asset directly is that it can use all of the value within the SaaS to do it. As we mentioned uh, a, a bit of time ago, the, the SaaS can also borrow in to leverage up on that. So um, there's ability to get 50% more value from the pension you had in it at the start and use all of that money. So you've got 150% of the asset value to, to acquire another asset. If you can then acquire that asset and add more value to that, then clearly that's attractive and that, and that could be as you see Jerry through um, refurbishment or change of use or um, change of planning consent or extending it or whatever and all these variables that can be done uh, with, with property commercial property then, then the SaaS can do that absolutely because it, if you think of the SaaS all it is interested in is taking money to invest it to create a long-term uh, pension structure that's all so if that process assists to do that then absolutely what, what the SaaS isn't is it's not a trading entity. So it wouldn't set itself up as the company that trades in commercial property assets, because it's not a company, but it can certainly buy those assets and turn them over and do that with a frequency, because if that's, if that's how the SaaS makes money, then that's within yeah. the realms of the SaaS to do it, and it's very attractive to do so. And in that process, it's also important to mention about that kind of optical prop core thing um, at the start you can be part of that process. So the SaaS can pay directly for refurbishment costs and consultancy fees and planning costs, and all these things are associated to improving that asset. But that could also include some works that your business may legitimately be involved within. Provided it's legitimate, it's not made up cost, then you could be an architect, for example, or you could be, you could be a construction or a trades business, and therefore that would be feasible. You could be legitimately supplying expertise and, and labour and, and, and output into that process. So there's a whole variety of ways that SaaS can interact with you and your business. But but yeah, that the, the trading aspect as in the development asset is very much something that SaaS yeah. can do. Okay, and, and we've just got a couple of minutes left and it would be remiss of us not to talk briefly about residential. Mm. Um, a lot of the listeners will have a residential portfolio and are looking to, to move into to commercial and, and will be wondering about SAS residential, we touched on it briefly before, and then we'll have had many conversations with people, I'm sure, about whether you can and you can't. There are some definites in this, and there are some parameters. Could you just maybe just quickly touch on those? Yeah, no problem. So um, for absolute clarity, no UK pension can directly own a residential property asset. It, it can't be done, whether that's a, a, a service apartment, a holiday let, and I, I get asked that question, three, four times a week, it just cannot be done. Um, so, so don't ask me about it again, because it can't be done. Um, I'll give you the same answer every time. <laughs> Feel free to ask me. Um, however, what a SaaS can do is by the, the, the tool that it has at its disposal, which is the loan back facility, which allows the SaaS to loan up to 50% of its own value to your business, then your business can use that funding from the SaaS to acquire residential property. That could be a deposit on a bike, it could be a deposit on a, a flip, it could be the full purchase price on an asset, whatever it may be, that's entirely up to your own business plan. But the key there is that it's your business that's acquiring that asset, not the SaaS. The SaaS may have funded it, which is different, and that's not the same transaction, the two are split within the business. Yeah. And I, I have often seen people comment, and perhaps on social media or other mediums, saying that they've bought resident property with a pension scheme. Now, in that structure I mentioned it, they have, but it's not in the pension. So there can be a lot of misnomers and misunderstandings about that. 
Um, it can be done. It's just not done in the same structure. That's all. The, the SaaS right. can facilitate it, but it can own it, if that makes sense. That's super. I thought we should just cover that. I hope I've um, covered everything that people will have questions in their mind. But if anybody wants to find it anymore, Paul, where should they go? What, what Can you give us some details where they can find you? Yeah, sure. A couple of things. So if you want to arrange a call with me, Paul, the easiest thing to do is to go to calendly.com forward slash Paul Barry. I can share that link with you, Jeremy, directly. Or um, to my website, which is sas-consultant.co.uk. SAS is spelled S-S-A-S. And there's a hyphen consultant.co.uk. Again, I'll share that with you, Jerry. But yeah, I'm happy to have a chat with anyone, answer any queries that they have. Appreciating this is a fairly complex process, and it usually takes a few conversations and a few exchanges. So I'm happy to do that. It's not a problem at all. Happy to help. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Paul. Thank you. Um, I'll put those. I'll put those details in the um, in the notes when, when we put the podcast out, so people can refer to that uh, to get in touch. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I feel there, there were many topics there that we could have delved into for a long period, but we, we managed to steer our way to the end. Hopefully right. we've covered most of the questions that people had. Um, I, I'd love to delve into this again later, but for just now, anybody who um, has listened to this podcast and, and thinks there are people that you know that would really benefit from it, please do um, pass it on. Thanks for the comments and for the reviews we've been getting. Really appreciate the feedback. Lots of you have been emailing me or contacting me through LinkedIn and sending messages, seeing how the podcast is influencing them and what they're doing. And I really appreciate that feedback. That's been great. If anyone has any topics they'd like us to discuss in the future, please, again, just leave a message or get in touch on LinkedIn. It's been a very good podcast. I've really enjoyed this, Paul. Thank you for your time. And we'll speak to you all again next week. 